Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. It has been observed during the past 30 years that we continue to litigate the 1960s, that beyond specific policies or politics of the moment, the cultural, social, and political battles of that era are still being fought in areas like civil rights, feminism, gay rights, worker rights, abortion, and the role of celebrities in our political debate. The battle continues to play out. What all this should tell us is that it was more than just the upheaval of the 60s. Perhaps it was what my guests David and Margaret Talbot call a second American revolution, one that reshaped the political landscape, one where every action was met with an equal reaction, one that created both hope and resistance and both progress and populism, a world where events of 50-plus years ago, more than half a century, still reverberate with us every single day. It's not just that the past is prologue. It's that the past is not even the past. That's the world that David and Margaret Talbot write about in their new book, By the Light of Burning Dreams. David Talbot, who's been on this podcast many times before, is the author of Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, as well as the national bestsellers Season of the Witch and The Devil's Chessboard. He's the founder and former editor-in-chief of Salon and was a senior editor at Mother Jones and was the one-time features editor at the San Francisco Examiner. Margaret Talbot is an American essayist and nonfiction writer. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and was formerly a senior fellow at the New American Foundation. She's the author of a book about their father, actor Lyle Talbot, entitled The Entertainer. And it is my pleasure to welcome David and Margaret Talbot here to talk about By the Light of Burning Dreams, the Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution. David, Margaret, thanks so much for joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. It's great to have you both here. David, I want to start with you. When we think about revolutions, whether it's the American Revolution, whether it's particular movements that have happened at, a, at times in our history, we can often identify a, a critical point when that revolution really sparked. When we look at all that we talk about, about the 60s and early 70s, is there a moment we can codify that really was kind of the spark that ignited all of this? Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you for the introduction, because that's what this book is trying to do, is reclaim this uh, turbulent history and say that it was essential to America that what we accomplished, and I was part of these movements uh, back in the 60s and 70s, was essential to moving America forward. And of course, there's been so much history, uh, you know, abuse heaped upon this history by the counter-revolution, by conservatives and Republicans and so forth, and even liberals, uh, a kind of a diminishing or a trivialization of that history. But it was very important. The turning point is exactly what Margaret and I focused on in, in each chapter of the book. And of course, we look at seven different movements and seven different iconic uh, you know, leaders of those movements and decisions that they made for good or ill uh, that were not only changed their own lives uh, in, in major ways, but the course of American history. So, for instance, the Black Panthers, Bobby Seale, who I interviewed uh, at great length, uh, was co-founder of the Black Panther Party with Huey Newton in Oakland back in the 1960s. And their decision to legally, because they had read the law books, Huey Newton was in law school at the time. They knew what uh, was California law was. They went to the streets of Oakland, West Oakland, where, uh, you know, 
black uh, people at nightclubs and, and dinners and, and, and restaurants and so on were being harassed routinely by white cops. And uh, they said, no more. This isn't going to happen anymore. This kind of harassment. And uh, so they confronted one policeman that night with uh, guns and they stood, uh, you know, uh, legally the distance away from the police officer that they had to by law and so on. But they observed him. And the, and the policeman, of course, was very upset by this. This was a major decision that the Black Panthers took to go onto the streets with guns and to say, this kind of uh, harassment is going to stop. Uh, now that was had some obviously some fatal and tragic consequences for the Black Panther Party and for the movement itself, but also it catalyzed people and woke people up. And that was Bobby Seale's intention to catalyze the community and then go into electoral politics in a very peaceful way. Uh, the Black Panther Party were not able to make that. Uh, pivot for some internal reasons as well as external reasons. They came under incredible pressure from outside, from J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and, and local police agencies. But those are the kind of things that Margaret and I really wanted to look at carefully. Decisions that these leaders made that uh, were historic and that I think still, as you were saying, have relevance uh, for today and today's activists. Margaret, how much was the anti-war movement pivotal to so much of this? Because it did seem to be the thing that, that initially everyone coalesced around. I think that's right. I mean, if you were you know, going to look at one moment or one, one um, uh, you know, historical uh, event that, that brought so many of these groups together, it was the opposition to the war. And that was true for, of course, Martin Luther King, for the civil rights, many of the civil rights leaders, for um, feminists and, and, and gay leaders as well. Um, you know, we have two chapters on each of those movements. And um, it, it was a movement because I think people were also um, able to not only uh, uh, oppose uh, the, the use of American power in this context in Vietnam, but also to look at the ways that um, the, the money and focus spent um, on that war overseas um, undercut the ability to respond to poverty and other issues here at home. And people explicitly made those connections and um, really came together in a very, what we would call now, you know, intersectional way. Um, uh, and a lot of the demonstrations were not just student or, uh, demonstrations as we're used to seeing or hippie demonstrations, but demonstrations that really united these, um, all of these movements. And Jeff, uh, if I could add to one thing to that, Tom Hayden, I think, deserves a lot of credit, and we give him that credit in our first chapter of the book. Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda, who, of course, were romantically involved and also politically uh, involved, you know, by the time 73, 74 came along, the, the anti-war movement in this country, and I remember it well myself, was burned out. And Tom Hayden refused, though, to be sidelined. And he and Jane Fonda led a movement to mobilize the heartland labor unions, religious groups all across the country, and they cut off congressional funding finally to the war in Vietnam, and that's what finally ended it. So the kind of, you know, counter history we heard that, oh, the, the, the peace movement didn't mean anything, had no impact, that's complete BS. Uh, Tom Hayden and Jane Fonda continued to leave, uh, lead an anti-war movement that did, in fact, have major impact on the war and finally ended the war. Which really brings up a broader question that, that goes to the heart of so many of these areas that you talk about. 
And that is whether or not these movements were individually led, whether it was the the people like Bobby Seale, like Tom Hayden, like Cesar Chavez, so many of the people that you, you talk about and focus on, whether these people were essential to these movements or whether it was grassroots. David, first you. Well, look, uh, Margaret and I make a case for leadership. Right. I know that's not particularly, um, you know, popular these days among the new generation of activists. People want a more horizontal rather than vertical structure in their movements and so on. And they tend to downplay leadership. But we think it's important. Uh, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, Tom Hayden, Bobby Seale. Uh, you know, Heather Booth, all the people that we write about in the book were necessary to those movements. Now, yes, of course, they need grassroots. We don't believe in the great white male, you know, theory of history that you have one man who sort of activates uh, history. But on the other hand, we do believe that leadership is important. Leadership that has to be accountable to those movements. It has to be democratic. It has to be uh, in touch with those the grassroots, as you say. But, you know, it takes leaders to galvanize those movements and to lead them. And so they just don't burn out. Look at Occupy. I was in Wall Street, uh, you know, when the Occupy movement that first weekend uh, erupted at Zuccotti Park in Wall Street. And I remember the endless process of those meetings that went on and on and on. And there were no leaders, purposely so. Uh, but it was anarchy to me. And it was a movement that did not sustain itself, unlike the Tea Party movement on the right wing, which, of course, got people elected to Congress and had a real impact on American politics. That's the difference between the left and right these days, it seems to me, that we don't value being on the left uh, you know, leadership, and, and we should. Margaret? Yeah, I would just add to that that um, I agree with everything David said, and also that, um, you know, we tried to think of leadership in some creative ways, too. So, um, for example, in the chapter on, on the gay liberation movement, um, the person we focus on is a, is a guy named Craig Rodwell, who started the first um, gay bookstore in the country, probably in the world, in New York. And, you know, his role was actually really in seeing that after the Stonewall uprising, that that was a really significant turning point. So his form of leadership was to say, let's commemorate this event. Let's not th- let this event, like some others in the past, go kind of, um, you know, slip away into the, in, into history and uh, into non-history and not really be recognized as the as the turning point and the and the moment of um, of, of of people really coming forward and 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 declaring themselves and and declaring gay pride that it was. So sometimes it's really it's it's about recognizing historical turning points and being able to articulate the significance of them. So it's it's it can be leadership in in more conventional um, kind of ways, electoral politics or it can be in these kind of more um, inspired um, um, reframings of, of, of historical turning points. Was there a sense, Margaret, that because there were so many battles being fought at the same time, civil rights, the war, farm workers, Native Americans, feminism, I mean, all the things that you talk about, all the, these different areas, that, that it made it more difficult or less difficult for the opposition to form against it? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think um, in some ways it, it, it made it a little easier because you could you could you know tar one with 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 the other you know um, 
but I think, um, and I think it was also for some people who really felt they had to be moving forward on all these different fronts or active in all these different movements, it could sort of lead to some burnout. Um, also, I think, you know, the, the, um, the FBI surveillance and harassment, a lot of, of a lot of these movements, which was really across all of them, you know, um, even, even women's liberation, which was kind of, um, unfamiliar to me. Of course, I knew about the harassment of, of, um, and surveillance of, of, and, 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 and worse of, of the Black Panthers, people like Fred Hampton and so on. But I did not know that, uh, you know, that also feminism was, was a target of, of, of Hoover's. Um, so I, I mean, I think that, that um, the sense that um, the 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 FBI and 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 um, you know conservative forces in America had of being um, overwhelmed on all sides with 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 all of these movements springing up probably led to greater um, efforts at repression um, and uh, a, a greater sense of threat, which was you know really damaging to a lot of these movements. Expand on that a little bit, David, in terms of who the enemy was, the government, Nixon, etc. And, and, and because there was real focus on, on finding, you know, who the enemies were. Well, exactly. As Margaret was saying, uh, all of these leaders that we uh, focused on in the book uh, were subjected to uh, constant harassment, surveillance, um, arrest and worst uh, and worse. Uh, Martin Luther King, as Margaret was saying, near the end of his life, was leading a, a remarkable uh, a movement. Uh, Bobby Field of the Black Panthers told me that Martin's office called Bobby and said, would you join my poor people's march on Washington in 1968? So he's, he was reaching out, this man of peace, to a broad coalition of people, uh, farm workers, uh, Native Americans, uh, black militants, and so on. And his idea was not just to march in Washington, but to occupy the nation's capital and demand that Congress divert resources from the Vietnam War to domestic issues that were very urgent. So this was a radical kind of, I think, tactic. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, by the way, had talked to Martin about it. So they were in, in, in touch about this. And, of course, they were both assassinated that year. So I, I know uh, I was 16 years old at the time, how devastating a blow that can be. And I understand why young people are suspicious of leadership today, but the lesson to learn from these assassinations and arrest and harassment of leaders is not that, oh my God, we can't have leaders. It's we have to do a better job of protecting our leaders and much better uh, this time around uh, than we did back then. Because, yes, leaders were eliminated. They targeted leaders because they, meaning the government, meaning J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, and so forth, knew how important leaders are. Talk about, Margaret, the sense of urgency of the moment, because there really was a sense of urgency that that surrounded all of this. Um, Yes, I think that's true. I mean, partly because of this kind of surveillance, partly because... um, uh, of the of the you know threat of the draft or the Vietnam War, um, but I think also there was a lot of hope in that urgency, a lot of um, sense of um, uh, um, belief that that you could reinvent a lot of um, 
um, institutions, a lot of um, aspects of everyday life. And that was very exhilarating. Um, you know, sometimes I see that a little bit less in movements today, that element of hope. It, you know, it may be because um, of, of the existential threats of climate change, which are so um, uh, dispiriting, uh, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, for, for all of the, um, the, the, the violence of the 60s, the, the, the assassinations, the surveillance, the harassment that we're talking about, I do think, and I mean, David, you know, lived through this in a way that I didn't, so maybe he can address this, but I do feel like there was this sense of um, the power and agency and hope um, around reinventing um, life to some extent. And that's why, you know, you got this, the personal political and feminism, and you've got all of this um, kind of spirit of, you know, music and counterculture and, um, and, and, and as I say, reinventing institutions from the ground up um, and, and alternative institutions. I don't know, David, do you feel like it was a more, hopeful time for all of the threats that we talk about? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, as someone who lived through it, I was in college uh, and an activist myself during the late sixties and seventies. And I feel it was a time of hope despite all the darkness. You know, we have a chapter, for instance, Jeff on uh, John Lennon, former Beatle and Yoko Ono, his wife. And, and John explicitly, after he left the Beatles, wanted to, and he moved to New York City. We have a chapter on the year of living dangerously, as we put it, of John Yoko in Greenwich Village when they were under an intense uh, harassment and surveillance from the FBI and the Nixon administration because they had uh, vowed to uh, overthrow Nixon and the war in Vietnam. And they knew the power, they being the FBI and so on, of a former Beatle. And John was writing songs at that time that he knew were going to be anthems of the uh, of the radical movement, and they did become, uh, you know, anthems. Uh, Give peace a chance, imagine, and so on. Um, those, I think, the culture that we built was as important as the politics, and I think the culture is what sustained us over the years. Uh, we could go to rock concerts. We could, you know, and, and Margaret wrote a beautiful chapter on the Jane Collective, which you can talk about in Chicago, and, and the medical services that provided women who were, you know, it was, they were outlaws, but it were essential services. So it was the institutions we built, the culture we built, that the music that we created that sustained the radical movement over years. And I think that's what you see glimmers of today, but uh, I'd like to see more. That. There is this sense that, that no matter how bad things got, even in the wake of assassination and, and the violence that, that occasionally was sparked, that there was a sense of possibility. Yeah. And and as David says, I mean, it's 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 wonderful to see glimmers of that. You 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 hope to see more. But uh, today. But um, yeah, I think that um, that sense that also you could move forward on on different fronts. So you could um, even though there was a lot of suspicion of electoral politics on the left, there were uh, there were um, people who were, who were willing to enter it. For example, Tom Hayden and, and, and even Bobby Seale, um, uh, who, who wanted to run and did run for mayor of Oakland. Um, and, you know, then at the same time, obviously, demonstrations out in the streets and and also and so working outside the system and then creating really, truly alternative and sometimes outlaw um, organizations like David referred to the Jane Collective, um, which we have a chapter on, 
which was a group of women who um, provided safe but illegal abortions prior to um, Roe v. Wade in the late 60s and early 70s to um, thousands of women in Chicago um, and um, were part of a larger institution called the Chicago Women's Liberation Union that had, you know, a rock band and a graphics collective and, you know, other medical services and just kind of were involved in this um, in this mutual aid and this building of a kind of um, alternative set of of institutions and 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 cultural um, kind of kind of entities that people could look to as examples for the future and also enjoy in the present moment. You know, Jeff, I wrote a book called Season the Witch a few years, years ago that was very popular and uh, particularly here in the Bay Area. And uh, we talked about I talked about in that book about how uh, we liberated one city, San Francisco, over time in the 1960s and 70s with so-called San Francisco values becoming dominant. And what uh, I think Marg and I were trying to do in this book is to explain how that movement became a national movement. And it, we were trying to remake the country, basically. And uh, I love what Robert Stone, the late novelist, who was one of my favorite novelists, uh, said about it at the time because he was part of these upheavals as well. He ran with Kim Kesey and the Pranksters at one point. Uh, and what Robert Stone said in his memoir at the end is he, he regrets looking back at his history. Only one thing. We didn't win. What we won was cultural, great cultural achievements, great social achievements, but we didn't win politically. When we were starting to write the book, Donald Trump was president instead of Bernie Sanders. So clearly we hadn't won. And Joe Biden is, you know, obviously a big improvement over Donald Trump, but not quite sort of the uh, the avatar of our movement that we would have liked to see at the top of the political uh, pyramid in America. So we didn't win politically, but we did win all these other uh, cultural and social achievements. But, you know, the politics is still essential. And uh, that's that's the next goal. And yet even those cultural achievements, while I think it's fair to say that they they did win, they're still being litigated, still being fought about 60 years later. Well, yeah, that's certainly true of, uh, for example, uh, reproductive rights. I mean, we, uh, you know, are going into next fall a Supreme Court term where Roe v. Wade may very well be overturned. Um, you know, we have a, a conservative majority, obviously, on the Supreme Court now and a landmark case coming before it. And, of course, individual states have been rolling back those rights, uh, you know, steadily for the last uh, decade or more. So, um, so yes, I mean, these are battles that, 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 that are still being fought, that are still very uh, vital and relevant uh, for people's lives. But, um, I, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a push and pull, but some of those transformations, you know, have lasted and will last. Um, you know, women's, working women's, you know, role in, 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 uh, in the workplace and in professions, you know, uh, gay gay rights and identity and, um, and, and, and reinterpretations of gender that have come in the wake of that um, or, or new understandings. Um, so, you know, those and other related issues around women and sexuality, I think, will last even though there are, there are these uh, fights around reproductive rights which, which, and even birth control that we are still, we are still engaged in. It does seem, David, that, that the gay rights movement, the whole LGBTQ movement, was the most successful, I mean, of all of these areas, workers' rights, civil rights, women's rights, that, that it is the one that seems to be the least 
litigated today, the one that seems to be the most accepted. Do you have a sense of why that is? Well, Margaret wrote the chapter, of course, on Craig Rodwell and uh, the uprising of Stonewall, and as she said, how that led to uh, the creation of Pride, uh, which we just celebrated nationally, internationally. Um, And, you know, yes, I I wrote about it extensively in San Francisco as well, because it's a big part of liberating a city, of course, uh, gave uh, liberation. And yet that was a bloody battle. Um, That was not easy. And Harvey Milk, of course, the gay supervisor in San Francisco, was assassinated. There are people who were beaten and arrested on the streets. There's bloodshed. There was uh, mob violence against gay people here, even in San Francisco. So, um, you know, nothing comes easily, Jeff. And I think that's the point of the book is, is that democracy is a daily struggle. Uh, you know, I have gone back to study the uh, sort of cradle of democracy in ancient Athens. Aya Stone wrote a wonderful book, The Trial of Socrates, years ago about this. And uh, you make clear that democracy is always at war with more authoritarian forces, with the forces of greed and power and money. And there's nothing different in ancient Greece than from today. And, of course, Mark and I called what we went through in the 60s and 70s, the second American Revolution, because the first American Revolution stopped short of liberating black Americans, uh, Native Americans, women, working people, gays, and obviously lesbians. And so we needed the second revolution desperately in the 1960s and 70s to extend, uh, I think, the dreams and the rhetoric of the original American Revolution. What was the sense, David, start with you and Margaret, I'd like you to comment too, the sense of self-awareness of so many of these people that you profile and have interviewed the sense of, of the degree to which they were aware that this was a revolutionary moment. David? Well, it, talking, let's talk about the American Indian movement and Dennis Banks, the original Americans. Uh, Dennis Banks, who I interviewed uh, at his 80th birthday party shortly before he died, sadly, uh, in 2017, was very clear about using the rhetoric of, uh, as many of these leaders were militant leaders of the American Revolution, the original revolution, to fight for their freedoms and their rights in the 1960s and 70s. And what they were willing to do was to stand up with guns again, a wounded knee in South Dakota on a reservation, Pine Ridge, against the militarized forces of uh, the Nixon administration. They were surrounded uh, immediately as soon as they occupied that hallowed ground where uh, almost 100 years before there had been a terrible massacre of Indian people. And there they stood. They heard the ghosts at night of the dead from these many years ago. And they withstood this enormous firepower. 500,000 rounds of ammunition was fired by uh you know, federal marshals and FBI and vigilantes uh, at these uh, men, women, and children, some 200 Native Americans uh, who were occupying Wounded Knee in 1973. And I tell the story amazingly because I think Dennis Banks was being set up to be killed uh, as Sitting Bull had been as Crazy Horse, other great Native American leaders uh, many years before. And on the final night of the siege, a young Navajo uh, named Lenny Foster, who I interviewed, led Dennis Banks through this encirclement, this militarized uh, encirclement, and uh, to freedom. So he lived to, to fight another day. 
they were quite clear that they were standing up to the full power of the U.S. government, these people, and they were willing to put their bodies on the line to sacrifice everything. Dennis knew he could be arrested. He could be killed at any moment. Russell Means, the co-founder of American Indian Movement, felt the same way and was in one you know, brutal fight after another. But these were heroes. And, you know, let, they were flawed heroes. Marg and I didn't write hagiography. We look at their flaws, the mistakes they made, but we also know that they were heroes. And it took a rare kind of courage, a crazy courage is what Mil- Martin Luther King called it, to do what they did, to stand up against his forces of repression and demand freedom. Margaret, expand on the whole self-awareness issue. Yeah, I mean, I... Um... First of all, I I was surprised to find how many of these leaders actually did um, draw explicitly on um, some of the language of the founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and and, um, talk about the ways that these promises of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness were explicitly not um, uh, extended to, uh, to to many groups in in, in American society, and um, but but they believed in those promises and 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 they wanted to extend them and and they and they drew some power and and inspiration and authority from the from that language, um, and uh, so so there was that level of of self awareness, but I think historical self awareness, but I think also it's an interesting question because I think in some ways the more people were aware of their place in history. And, um, and 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 of these kind of um, turning points that they were helping to 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 steer, um, kind of the more effective they were. And I think you see that in more recent movements too. I mean, I, I think in, in 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 among the people who understood, for example, that the um, killing of George Floyd was going to be a kind of um, inflection point and bring people out in the streets. Um, you know, the the, the Black Lives Matter. Um, um, leaders and, and, and activists who understood the significance of that moment. Um, you know, uh, so I think, and, and, and that, you know, change in the way people looked at, 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 at policing, um, and, and the threats faced by, um, black people in the streets of our cities. So I, I think, you know, that, that, um, ability is, is a real, I mean, we talked about this earlier a little bit is a form of leadership that, that, um, I was really struck by and impressed with, um, in, in this, in, in, in researching this book with David, you know, that, that some people did have that ability and did have that ability to, to speak to and for history. Um, and that's, that's a powerful thing. There's a sense, David, that a lot of these events sort of fed on themselves. There was something in the air at the moment that, that created so much energy around all these things. Was there a moment when, when you could tell that the air started to go out of all of these movements? Well, there was a poisonous uh, uh, kind of miasma that started to descend on these movements. Um, I think some of it was burnt out. We talked about that. Some of the people were just, I think, tired of going in the streets, being arrested, being beaten. And uh, when Nixon Vietnamized, uh, you know, uh, as he put it, the war in Vietnam, putting more of the war on the shoulders of the South Vietnamese Army and bringing American GIs home, of course, there was less than uh, incentive for many Americans to get involved in the anti-war movement. But I think there was because the repression also was so severe and so many arrests, so many beatings, so many killings that uh, people began to, I think, get weary of that as well and just want to get on with their lives. 
Um, so at some point, I think all movements have a shelf life. And uh, because that's why we call the book by the light of burning dreams, uh, they do burn themselves out at some point, And that's maybe necessary. Uh, I think in this case, we're looking at a period of about 15 years where people did amazing things, things that were bigger than they themselves uh, were thought were capable of. Uh, leaders grew up from obscurity. Uh, Dennis Banks and Russell Means had both ex-convicts, uh, both criminal histories. Uh, you know, uh, Huey Newton was a violent guy on the streets of Oakland uh, who then realized that the power of the political liberation and black liberation was something he had to commit his life to. Um, but these were not perfect people. You know, they didn't come as one dancer we quote from revolutionary heaven. They were uh, human beings with the flaws, with the, uh, with character problems, with addiction issues, some of them. Uh, you know, they got addicted to the fame, to the glory. Uh, some of them became violent characters. In Huey Newton's case, became essentially a gangster on the streets of Oakland. Um, and so we do need accountability for these leaders. We do need to be able to hold them uh, in check in some way and to have a system of checks and balances. And yet without these leaders, these, these heroes that we write about, these, this history would not have been made. That's clear. Why is it, Margaret, that today we seem to have so much trouble separating that, that, that we look at people to be perfect, you know, and the perfect stands in the way of the good? It's so difficult today, and certainly less so then. Yeah, I mean, there certainly was some of that then. You know, I um, I mean, I wrote this chapter on women's liberation. There was there was uh, a lot of sort of emphasis on, you know, who was the best and the purest feminist, and, and right. you know, you didn't want to be too much— too much of a leader because you know that could you know you didn't want to be a star you didn't want to attract too much attention um you know it was supposed to be very egalitarian non-hierarchical and everything so that's true of a lot i mean that was true of progressive movements then um but you know arguably uh maybe even truer now i think some of uh what david was saying about the the fact that so many leaders were um were harassed or even assassinated um you know did create a lot of understandable fear and 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 paranoia about leadership um that lasts probably you know to some extent today um but i think you know this is a perennial problem of progressive movements we want to be egalitarian and non-hierarchical and democratic and that's all wonderful but you know you do need some people to step forward you do need you need charismatic people too who are willing kind of to be to be stars as long as um david says they can also be held um held accountable you know infiltration was another big problem jeff i just quickly want to add to my um the police infiltration of these movements was widespread and uh part of again fbi uh sort of strategy with the cointel pro program launched by J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and so these movements often didn't know who was a police informer or who's someone they could trust. In the case of Dennis Banks, again, from the American Indian Movement, it turned out that his bodyguard, who was with him virtually every hour of the day, and his ex-wife were, were both police agents. 
became police agents. So, um, you know, literally the paranoia was so high among within these movements. And sometimes, unfortunately, it led to uh, people turning on each other, uh, people who were, uh, became focuses of suspicion who should not have been. Uh, but this was the kind of paranoia that was sowed as strategy, as a tactic by the government within these movements. Margaret, talk about thinking about today and where we are in all these areas today as you were working on this book, as you were reliving these experiences. Well, you know, when we uh, were working on this book, we did, um, uh, you know, last summer, um, the the Black Lives Matter movement was bringing people out in the streets again. And um, I think we were both, you know, very hardened and inspired by that, because I think one of the points of this book, um, you know, is that people do sometimes have to get out there and kind of put their bodies on the line in various, um, you know, ways to to make to make change. And um, so the fact that that was a movement that even in a pandemic um, brought so many people out, um, you know, was, 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 I think, very um, inspiring to, to both of us. Um, And, you know, I think um, for, for, um, for, for women who are uh, feminists, who, who want to organize around reproductive rights, I think, uh, you know, we may need to uh, think of ways that people can uh, provide abortion services and uh, help people get to states where where abortion is legal. I mean, doing that kind of direct action that we write about with the uh, with the Jane Collective um, and other organizations in the 60s, because we may actually be facing a post row world um, in the next uh, year or so. And so those kind of um, mutual aid and direct action, which you do see examples of today, um, may have to be, uh, you know, a more important part of people's lives and political um, uh, strategies. You think this younger generation today can do that? I do. (laughs) You know, we, uh, David and I both have um, um, young adult children uh, who are very uh, political and, um, you know, I, uh, they and their friends um, give me a lot of hope. Um, You know, I think they are creative and savvy. I mean, I think, you know, we all worry about, you know, is, 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 is kind of social media life online draining, you know, people's ability to kind of act in real life. And, but I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful on that front personally. Um, David, I think you are too, aren't you? Yeah. And, and partly because of the younger activists I do know, I've worked with some, many of them here in San Francisco where I'm politically active and also my own two sons. And I know Margaret feels the same way about her kids. Uh, one son, Joe Talbot, is a director. He made The Last Black Man in San Francisco, a great film. Uh, Jimmy Fails, his, uh, uh, the star of that film, uh, was, was like another son t- to my wife and me. Uh, he spent several years living uh, as a young man in our house. So uh, I believe in Joe and Jimmy's commitment to uh, you know creating a kind of art that makes people think, that provokes people. The Last Black Man, I think, you know, had serious things to say about gentrification uh, and so on. And yet it was a work of art. And I like the fact that actually uh, my kid is doing something that's not explicitly political, but is in some ways deeper and can move more people uh, through the power of music and movies and so on. And my other son is more of an activist, Matt. 
Um, and he's great in his own right and actually, you know, pushes uh, his parents and uh, his bro- older brother all the time on, on different political issues. So, um, yeah, I, I believe in the future. I just heard Jimmy Carter say this last night on PBS. Uh, he and Rosalind, his wife, uh, were being interviewed on the uh, on the occasion of their 75th anniversary. Amazing. And he was saying that he believes in yeah, and, and and Jimmy Carter was saying, you know, there's a ripe old age. He believes in America, too, and, and in the power of Americans to do the right thing, ultimately. And I guess in my ripe old age, I'm going to be 70 this year, I, I believe in that as well, that uh, when push comes to shove, all Americans ultimately do do the right thing. There's going to be dark years we saw recently, very dark years under Trump, but ultimately Americans do the right thing. Uh, and as I say, democracy is a day-to-day struggle. They never give up the forces of reaction, of greed, of authoritarianism. They'll always try and take command. Uh, and we have to keep struggling every day. I know we get tired and we burn out, but if we build a movement like they did in the 60s, it does sustain people for a longer time. David Talbot, Margaret Talbot. The book is By the Light of Burning Dreams, The Triumphs and Tragedies of the Second American Revolution, David, Margaret, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. It was great. Thank you both. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.